You're listening to 100 Words or Less with Ray Hargens. Hello one, hello all. Thank you for downloading this podcast about independent music and having conversations with people who are creating it, putting it out, documenting it, all of that fun stuff. We are having a conversation today with Brian Moss. He played in a band called The Ghost from the uh, early 2000s. He currently plays under the moniker uh, Hanalai. He's actually been doing this solo project uh, ever since The Ghost was touring and actively putting out music. And he's been continuing to do it. He actually just released a new record uh, called Black Snow that is really, really good. I've enjoyed all of the stuff that he has put out personally. And I, I felt like when this opportunity came across my desk, I was like, I would love to have a conversation with Brian because The Ghost was just such an interesting band because they, you know, they had a, a little bit of heat as far as the music industry is concerned and people were interested in them and they were drawing some people. Um, but then, you know, they broke up because obviously real life gets in the way and, you know, the fact when you're not making any money on tour, that's, uh, that's rough after a while. But um, yeah, so I was like, I want to sh- put a shine on The Ghost and I want to put a shine on uh, Brian's solo project, and I just found his conversation on this podcast to be incredibly engaging. He's been a teacher for many years, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to share his story with you. And if you are not familiar with The Ghost, check it out. And if you are not familiar with Hanalai, please listen to it. He has a lot of records under his belt. But uh, you can also reach out to this show. Email me at 100wordspodcast at gmail.com. I accept any uh, you know ideas, conversations you want to start. I just uh, really like that feedback because sometimes recording these podcasts Casts, uh, you know, by myself and with another guest. Like sometimes, you know, I just feel like I'm kind of putting out, putting it out to the internet, and uh, I want to hear some feedback. So you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That uh, helps out this show, it legitimizes it, and uh, yeah, just you know, I would appreciate that if you've listened to this podcast for years and you've never done it. Uh, now's the time. Let's go. Let's do that. Um, one last thing before we dive into the conversation with Brian. I got to watch a band live, which feels really, really weird to say because, you know, we're over a year of us being, you know, uh, locked inside and not being able to, uh, you know, be in community like we all are used to. And so I went to Revelation Records, had a pop-up shop in their parking lot where they had a bunch of cool vendors, you know, like, a, you know, Program, which is an amazing skate shop slash uh, record store here in Southern California. Um, there was also Peach's Bake Shop, which is an amazing uh, vegan bakery. They don't have a storefront, but uh, she does some amazing treats. Um, and there are a bunch of other cool record labels, uh, Trust Records, uh, Maggot Stomp Records, uh, which is run by an old friend of mine named Scott. And uh, it was just a awesome vibe because I got to see people who I hadn't seen in over a year and then, uh, you know, got to watch a band called uh, Sweet Soul. Uh, they put out a record on New Mortality Zine, the record label, which I absolutely adore. And watching a band in a parking lot, I didn't think it was going to mean as much to me as it did, but it totally did. There were moments it was like, oh man, like I love watching bands. I love watching, um, you know, people just react to music and they, they had a lot of fun. They actually did a cover, um, of uh, California Sun, and it was it was just fun. It just really reminded me why, obviously, I like music and like the aspect of watching music with others a lot. So thank you very much to Revelation Records, and uh, yeah, it was really, really, really fun. So I look forward to sharing more of those moments with all of you in the future as we start to you know watch bands play again. But anyways, here's Brian, and I will talk to you at the end of the episode. Faces. 
I 110% saw the ghost play. Uh, I was trying to place it like you guys for sure played Chain Reaction at one point, right? Oh, tons, yeah. Okay. And I, I want to say that I, uh, it, well, walk me through your, uh, the, the, the tours that you came through on uh, at Chain Reaction because I'll identify the one that I actually saw you at. There were so many, Ray. I don't think there's any way I could <laughs> okay. like, recall them all. I remember, so my band before The Ghost certainly played there as well, but I think the first time The Ghost played there was with Small Brown Bike and 12-Hour Turn, and a video okay. that resurfaced recently, which was... Yes, that, you hit the nail on the head. That was actually, uh, that. I mean, that was an amazing show in general, but like, I, you know, I, and I was already a fan of what you were doing from that perspective at The Ghost. Um but it was, uh, you know, it, it was one of those things where, and I'm sure that this statement is not uh, lost on you, where, you, like, the Ghost is such a weird band. Like, you, you guys fit in everywhere and nowhere all at the same time, you know. <laughs> and and that, you know, that that tour was interesting because I felt like that was a little more aligned, at least with our interests and what we were listening to, and then. Um, you know, by, by no means am I intending to throw shade on um, booking agents, but for a while we got put on pop punk tours and that, that certainly wasn't our thing. And uh, I think that we were far more out of place, um, you know, on a, on a pop punk lineup than we were with say small round bike. Totally. And, and I think that was very indicative of that time because it was like any band that had any sense of melody, it was like, Oh, like, you know, you either tour with like Thursday or Boy Sets Fire, or then maybe you're touring, like, you know, fingers crossed, you can tour with like All American Rejects. And you're just like, well, is there anything else that we can do? Like, <laughs> you know, I don't, I, I don't know. It's like the, the false, the false dichotomy. It's so, yeah, that's absolutely. And it's like, you know, we could have gone, if we had gone on tour with some huge pop punk band like All American Rejects, I think the impact would have actually been less, uh, you know, playing for, thousands of their fans versus uh 50 of small round bikes you know right <laughs> yeah no totally and it's uh and and that's why i think it, it, with you guys in particular um it, it, the 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 sound that you were not only creating and obviously coming from chicago where it was like it, there was this like you guys were kind of like a bridge band for lack of a better term where it was like okay clearly anybody that paid attention to the chicago scene heard the influences and like all these things that you guys were pulling from, but then you were also pulling from all of these other sort of geographic uh, regions as well and trying to be like, you know, expand on whatever the quote unquote typical sound from Chicago was. Um, did that get reflected back on you? Like, did people kind of recognize that? Yeah, I think so. And it, you know, honestly, it's a lot of it is we, we started that band in the Bay area and moved because we couldn't afford to tour and live in Oakland or Berkeley um, so we moved out there and just literally, I think I put a couple boxes on, you know, Amtrak freight and threw what I could fit in the van other than the gear. We toured out to Chicago with the Lawrence arms and then we lived there. Um, and so I think that you had kind of this culmination of specifically very like punk East Bay sounds. And then the more time we spent in Chicago and the more, um, you know, subgenres of, of punk and hardcore indie rock that we were exposed to, that became an influence and you know weaved its way into our sound overall sure sure that and that, that that's interesting because i actually i i did not know that there the origins were in the uh the the bay area that's interesting yeah yeah so i you know we're everyone in that band is from the bay um and you know like i said just the price 
uh, the cost of living just became too immense to work around tours. You know, I was, uh, I think at one point, a bunch of us were working temp jobs, just calling the temp agency in between tours. Oh, please give me work. And it's just like the worst shit. I remember one job I had was, um, being on an assembly line at the Kaiser uh, optical facility, literally just rinsing eyeglass lenses all day long, <laughs> just stuff like that. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, and you're like, this is... so we move out there, and it's like, oh yeah, I, you know, I, I I emailed Brian Peterson, who's the booker at Fireside, and, and I had a little bit of a history with him. And I was like, hey, can I work at the venue? He's like, oh yeah, sure. So, I'm like, well, man, fuck the Bay Area. This is way better, you know. <laughs> Right. You're like, I can actually be at a place that, uh, you know, understands my plight and, uh, you know, isn't going to just like give me the worst jobs of all time. Absolutely. And I think our first apartment and we all lived together as a band was no joke, 250 bucks a month. And that was the early, you know, 2001, something like that. Um, but even with inflation, you can figure that one out. I mean, it was, there were, um, bloodstains from, uh, you know, the, the violent hippie variety, I guess that's, that's, that's uh, who had been occupying the apartment prior and they had all, you know, they gotten into the needle scene. And so there was that, but you know, $250 a month and that's total, not per, not per person. You can't beat that. So. Right. Right. Yeah. That's incredible. That's incredible. Uh, well, putting the, the focus squarely on you as a person, uh, where, where did you come up? Where were you born and raised? So um, in there's basically there's in between uh, El Cerrito and Berkeley, there's a little unincorporated township uh, called Kensington. And I grew up there about like, I don't know, it was a block off the Berkeley border. So, you know, for people that are unfamiliar with the East Bay, I'll generally uh, say Berkeley to give them a, a sense of location. But yeah. Got there. it. Yeah, no, I, I've never heard of Kensington, but yeah, obviously, you know, Berkeley looms large in our uh, our, our punk lives. Right, right. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I'm going to guess that because of the, you know, adjacency to, uh, you know, that whole area, um, was it kind of a, a more suburb life or was it definitely more like, oh, we're connected in the city. So, you know, it, it's that kind of vibe. It's, you know, in, in high school, I really found it to be... F- fairly divided. You know, you're going to shows in Berkeley and Oakland, certainly, but I, I wasn't crossing the bridge much at that point. Um, I'd go over there when I was really into skating. I'd go skate the SF spots, but um, I, you know, there were, I weren't, I, I didn't go to a ton of shows in San Francisco. There, you know, a couple stand out in my memory, you know, really kind of larger bands. Like I definitely saw Fugazi at Maritime Hall um, while I was still in high school and that, you know, that was amazing. So I'd go over if it was something really important, but generally there was so much going on at say Gilman and the Berkeley square, um, and then DIY venues or teen centers, stuff of that nature that, um, we didn't, I, I don't know, you know, access is hard if you don't have a car, um, or, or your, your parents on your case, not wanting you on BART late at night. Um, so, you know, we had enough going on that we didn't necessarily need to go over there. Right, right. And that it, it's pretty cool how, you know, especially that city, the, you know, the whatever Oakland, Berkeley, and then, you know, across the bay, like there was so much happening from that perspective, but they could not be more different scenes. You know, it's like you had, obviously it's like the bottom of the hill on one side and like, you know, I mean, Gilman and everything you were talking about. It's just so interesting to kind of look at it through that lens. Absolutely. And, you know, as, as I got older, um, you know, I moved this summer, but prior to that, I spent, I think, 11 maybe 12 years in San Francisco and, and, you know, adored it and, and found that music community to be, um, I don't want to say more inclusive, but more up to speed with, with where I was at for the past decade or so and more aligned with my interests, um, musically, socially, 
Um, I, you know, I wouldn't say the, there's a large political difference between the East Bay and San Francisco, but you know, you get what I'm saying. Right. Yeah, totally. And so what was your uh, upbringing like, like, you know, brothers and sisters in the house, uh, mom and dad in the picture, where did that stack up? Um, only child and yeah, mom and dad in, in the picture, certainly. Uh, my mom was a teacher as well. So I grew up kind of around education. Uh, my dad is very outdoors aligned. So there was a lot of that in, in my upbringing as well. He's a mountaineer and a climber. Um, so we'd be, we'd be up in the Sierras a lot. He, you know, he got me into backpacking at a, at a very young age and, um, I, I, that has made a lifelong impact. Um, and it's, you know, the, the outdoors, I, I'm sure we'll get into the new record at some point later, but it's, it's something that I, I, I value immensely and, um, have kind of built my, my life around, um, you know, working, but having access to the ocean and the mountains. So I, I can spend time in nature as frequently as possible. Um, but yeah, my parents are um, great and, you know, they, they instilled a lot of good values in me. I think, um, like a lot of people do, I, I saw them doing some, some shit that I wasn't fond of or that, um, really upset me at times. And, you know, as we get older and we realize that we, um, as, as much as we can resist or attempt to resist, um, becoming them or taking parts of them on, uh, it's inevitable. <laughs> so, you know, you, you try to, you try your best to retain the positive qualities and, and weed out the bad behaviors or, or personality traits. Sure. Right. Yeah. Especially too, like once you have the wherewithal to understand that like, oh, I didn't agree with why they did that or, you know, their, that decision. It's like, yeah, I'm going to try to stay away from that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah. And, you know, I don't, I don't want to get too into it, but I think, you know, their, their relationship was sorted at points and I, I slowly and surely took notes on that and um, try my best to not repeat that. Um, in, in my marriage or in other relationships that I've been in the past. But, but overall um, I would say that I was incredibly fortunate um, and was, was raised with, with love and with uh, access to, you know, the outdoors and some travel and um, education. So yeah. Nope. That's awesome. That's awesome. And it's only gratitude overall. Sure. Sure. And what, what subject did your mom teach? Um, she taught elementary, so she was on, you know, the multi-subject path. And then she went, she worked most of her career, uh, in, in Richmond, California, not the neighborhood in San Francisco, but the East Bay community, which is, um, in, it's changing now, but, uh, at the time, you know, eighties and nineties, it was very impoverished. Um, a lot of, uh, kids that were, were not being served, um, uh, effectively or appropriately by the public education system. So she taught there and then, Went on to be a principal for a little bit, um, ended up really disliking that. So then dedicated the later part of her career to writing curriculum for um, for kids in that community um, that, you know, was an alternative to the, the curriculum that was in place and clearly not working for them. Right, right. Oh, that's cool that, that she was able to take that, you know, interdisciplinary uh, work and be able to kind of, you know, spread that out and help other people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that and that was certainly uh, an influence uh, for me. Yeah. And it is interesting how many people that get exposed to the subculture that, you know, we exist in that, you know, punk, hardcore, indie, whatever you want to call it, um, and do get attracted to teaching because it's like, it's almost that same sort of 
hand to mouth experience of like, oh, I do something and then this happens like, you know, whatever I put out a tape and I'm able to play a show uh, or, you know, I, I, if I do the, you know, develop this, you know, really cool lesson plan, I see in real time how kids are reacting to it. And it, it's just interesting that through line, like I, I see it, you know, very often when I have these conversations. Totally. And, you know, I think that's um, a, a keen observation. I've, I've kind of had to spoon feed that to um, other other people in discussion before. And um, yeah, I think those parallels completely make sense. You know, on on one hand, there is, and you've, you've referenced both these things, but there's kind of the performance aspect of it, right? I think that um, if you have experience playing in bands or you watch a lot of bands or, you know, other performers, um, you you realize in a classroom that you have to be captivating and engaging and, and entertaining to a degree in, in order to hold the attention of students. Um, and then also, you know, with having a punk background uh, there, there's so ethics is a huge component, right. And um, you know, in uh, an ideology of equality um, and progression, improving the world at large. And, you know, for me, that was really what I, you know, strove for with, with writing and lyrics, that was always the component for me. And, you know, how can I write in such a manner or what can I write about that is going to both comfort people that are struggling, um, and then inspire people to make positive changes, um, whether that's for themselves or, um, a larger community or, you know, the, the world as a whole. Um, and yeah. obviously, you know, like te- teaching, if, if you're not teaching, uh, with, with that in mind, or that's not a driving force, then I really would question your, place in the field <laughs> totally yeah, it's like they're why? out there that's the thing i've encountered a lot of them and it's uh, it's never a, a fun experience and the uh the, the kids kind of suffer as a result but usually they get weeded out sometimes not yeah uh, no i agree wholeheartedly it's so interesting when you're able to draw the the uh conclusion when you see like the good teachers and everybody can you know recount like maybe on one hand, like the teachers that really made an impact. Um, but usually those are the ones that have some really, uh, you know, either unique point of view or obviously, like you said, being able to, you know, not relate to the students like, Hey, I'm their best friend, you know, like the, the Steve Buscemi meme or whatever. Like, <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, no, that's really interesting. So how did uh, I guess more independent minded music sort of come to you? Cause I, I'm going to guess that, you know, you, your parents probably weren't, you know, delivering misfits records to you or whatever. Um, or maybe they were, but uh, you know, how did that come to you? So my, my mom, uh, you know, she actually did. No, my mom um, just played Linda Ronstadt and, and Aaron Neville on repeat. Uh, nice. Brutal. And my, you know, my dad was into the stones and that's, that's well and fine. I'm not, I'm, I definitely go stone side over the Beatles, but he would just sing. You can't always get what you want. And he's the most like tuneless man on earth. I don't know where I got any of the, the minimal musical abilities that I have. It was not from him. And he would do that whenever I asked for something and want to give it to me. Um, so I kind of, you know, I obviously growing up in the Bay area or to a degree, any urban environment for that matter, uh, you're going to be exposed to a little bit more than you would be out in the deep suburbs or in a rural environment. And there's just a lot of culture in the Bay area, obviously. So, you know, I was into metal and grunge and I'd occasionally, I remember in middle school, you know, checking out some hip hop or or finding the college radio dial and and hearing cool stuff there. Um, But really what did it for me is um, I, I had three, 
uh, friends and, uh, that were all kind of there, this, this tight little pack of young women in middle school and early high school. And, uh, you know, I, I became ingrained in that group and two of them had brothers. I think one was a stepbrother, um, in bands and the stepbrother one, he was in the Winona Riders on lookout. And then the other young lady, her brother was Jesse Michaels from Op Ivy. Op Ivy had obviously disbanded. Well, I'm not, I'm not, it's not obvious, I guess, to your listeners, but I'm not that quite that old. Right. <laughs> they, they had disbanded, uh, you know, I'd say uh, a solid handful of years prior, but um, the three of them and the other one was just cool as shit and into really great music too. And they just uh, kind of shared all of their, um, tastes and resources with me. I had so many mixtapes that they made me. And that was, um, I'd say how I was indoctrinated into punk and really that, that it just snowballed from there completely. Um, and it was fun too. you know, back then it's like, if you're finding about new music, it's, it's word of mouth or it's zines or, um, as I often did, I would just <laughs> go down, you know, I had access to great record stores, Rasputin's and Amoeba and I'd, I'd go down to Telegraph and I would at times just literally, I'd be like, oh, that the cover of that record looks fucking punk. I'm going to buy it based on the cover, you know? And I think we still, we still see that in, in American consumerism as a whole, you know, people will buy something based on the label or whatever. And, um, you know, often that, that did, that didn't work out for me, that approach, but sometimes it did. Yeah, <laughs> I do. I do love that when it is the, um, you know, the visceral nature of whatever the artwork is, where it's just like, I don't know what subhumans sound like, but that sounds, that, that looks so cool. Yeah. <laughs> this cover looks heavy for sure. So, uh, right. Absolutely. Well, it's, you know, like I, I think too, then going on your own discovery path of, you know, older music of more obscure artists um, was a process too. And, and one that I enjoyed and certainly one that took a lot of work. Um, I'm not going to sit here and, and shake my cane, but it's, it's like, it's overwhelming now I would imagine to, to youth that are um, trying to um, pinpoint or their tastes or explore because there's it's the, the access of everything throughout like musical history at your fingertips is, is just wild. It's, it's, it's oversaturated, you know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. To be able <laughs> to be able to differentiate, you know, not only the, the weed from the chaff, but then also understanding how certain things place in context, like, it's just, you know, yeah, I, I, I'm with you where it's like, you don't want to sound like old man on the porch, but it's just like, dude, if it's like constant fire hose, like I, you don't, and you don't know what anything is, you're just like, well, I like this song. So I guess I like this band. It's like, okay. I guess that's where we're going. Right. And that, you know, that goes into the concept too. I, I, I'd have to read up on this. I, I certainly wouldn't try to verify it myself or, or claim it as factual, but I hear a lot of discussion regarding uh, the concept that people that people in you know younger generations do not listen to records in their entirety. Um, it's more of a, like a single based culture or one or two songs and then move on to the next thing. Like just, you know, I, which I guess is maybe an evolution of the mixtape. Who knows? Yeah, no, no. It's yeah. You can definitely parse it in a million different ways and be like, Oh, maybe there is an analogous way that this, you know, stacks up against, you know, the previous 10 years of music discovery or whatever. But yeah, well that, I love like that's amazing that you had that experience with like I mean Winona Riders are a great band and I mean obviously being connected to Jesse Michaels like having that in your orbit like that's a uh, uh, that looms large yeah and and you know what like I, I, obviously you know this too certain bands don't hold up over time and as our as our chase our, our tastes evolve um, or you know devolve but uh, sure. I still listen to the, I do still frequently listen to both those bands. They, I mean, 
yeah, there's no way. I mean, there are certain starter kit bands. I mean, especially when you're talking about Op Ivy, it's just like, I, you know, I, I dare somebody that is, you know, hasn't been exposed to that record that obviously considers themselves like, you know, punk in some capacity. It's like, that's a rite of passage. You've got to have an Op Ivy record. I, I mean, abs- absolutely. And just, you know, as a lyrical influence, like that's, it's, it's so advanced, you know, I, yeah. top five fight me on that you know if we're talking lyrics and punk it's 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 amazing to think of his age too when he wrote that um it's 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 phenomenal lyrically yeah oh totally totally yeah it's like when you uh when you put it all together and you're just like man if any of these things didn't work out like that uh, or you know if all cylinders weren't firing like this wouldn't be good or wouldn't hold up but it's just like man they hit it all out of the park yeah, absolutely <laughs> i've heard conversations too um regarding like how that if, if you redid that record and, and actually uh, produced it in a uh, well at least conventionally good sounding way like how, how it would just be awful and I, I agree with that notion yeah it's kind of like the idea of you know taking old films and making turning them into IMAX you're just like you don't need to do that or turn them into 3D or whatever. Right. Why would you just perfect how it is? You know, the imperfections are the perfection. Band merch is incredibly important to our independent music community. And the place that you should go to buy all of your band merch is rockabilia.com. You've heard me speak about them many times in this podcast, but I am incredibly passionate about what they do. For one, it's all officially licensed stuff. For two, it's high quality. And three, use this promo code, 100 words, that gets you 10% off of your order, and you will be able to buy yourself some new stuff. You can buy friends and family, and they have so many things. They have over half a million items. You can get lost on their website for hours and have so much fun just stacking your cart with all of this, you know, long sleeves, short sleeves, sweaters, towels. They have everything you could possibly want from band merch. You can, you know, posters, they got it all. So please go to rockabilly.com, use this code 100 words, and it will get shipped to you fast, friendly customer service in case you have any issues. And it's independently run. These are punk and hardcore kids that are behind the scenes doing the work for all of these bands. And I love them for it. So rockabilly.com, 100 words is the promo code. Go enjoy. And so, uh, I mean, like you mentioned with your, uh, father as a, you know, outdoorsman and, you know, being able to expose you to the nature and, you know, doing that whole, uh, thing, did you kind of find your identity in that? Or were you also like a sports kid, you know, like, did you care about school? What identity were you building for yourself? I mean, uh, you know, the, the music part was, it was a huge component, um, just counterculture, you know, I didn't, um, I, I never really identified with, uh, the, the, the popular kids, if you will. So that, you know, the, the music was, you know, I play music, I listen to music, but also the, the ideologies attached with that. And, um, you know, the, the misfit angle was, was certainly part of who I was and am. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, as a, as a kid or as a teenager, I really appreciated the outdoors. I didn't consider that a component of my identity. Now I absolutely would. Um, you know, I didn't, I think my parents made me suffer through little league and soccer. I was certainly the one like picking daisies in left field. Um, having said that I did have the California experience of being, um, heavily into skateboarding. Um, and that also, you know, I should, I should have mentioned this, right. That I think also provided me with some musical pathways, right? Like old skate videos definitely had some banger soundtracks with some great punk songs on them or hip hop songs. So that was, that was a way of, uh, of getting exposed to 
um, you know, to music as well. And yeah, I think, you know, skate culture played into my identity at that point too. Um, these days I just surf a ton because I'm, I'll skate around for, for fun, but, um, I will break a hip and tap that life alert button if I try anything real. So, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. yeah. You know, your limitations, right? Yeah. The California board sports thing that like factored in as well. Yeah. And I'm glad you mentioned that because it definitely, even if you did not have a proclivity at, you know, standing up on a board, whether it was surf or skate, you were undoubtedly influenced by it. Like you cared about it. You consumed the cult. You, you know, you bought surf magazines or like you said, skate videos, even if you didn't do it, like that was just kind of like, again, almost a rite of passage. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's just so ingrained in, in California culture. It's just like om- omnipresent, you know, like you see kids wearing like all, all the gear and yeah, they don't, maybe they don't skate. Maybe they don't surf. It's just like, it's just part of the culture here. And even if you hate it, you're going to encounter it. Yeah, <laughs> no, totally. Totally. And, uh, did you care about like, you know, high school as you started to, you know, get more autonomy on your own? Um, did you apply, you know, quote unquote, apply yourself as you would say to your students? Um, I, I did, I did decently in the subjects that I enjoyed or the ones that I could comprehend. Um, so yeah, I mean, I gravitated to language arts, um, only when I had a decent teacher and there, there are just a handful that come to mind. Most of them, I just forgot about that. They were neither awful um, or standout. And I, th- I think the way I, my memory works, at least, is I only remember the really good or bad ones. Um, you know, math and science, not so much my thing, not, and that's by no means to uh, disregard them or downplay them or their importance. Uh, I just wasn't interested in it and I was not successful. Uh, I still struggle with basic math. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I did. You know, I think I did all right in, in high school, you know, probably around like a B, high C deal and got into a bunch of schools and then stayed local to keep playing music and dropped out quickly um, and went on tour for a long time and then slowly started working college back into uh, an alternating tour schedule um, semester on kind of semester off while while the ghost was active and while I was in Chicago. Got it. And what was your, uh, I guess, your first band experience? Like, you know, that was out of the garage, proverbially, you know, where you were like actually releasing music and stuff like that. Oh, high school, just uh, a couple bands that uh, I, I will not mention. They were. I will leave nameless. <laughs> yes. Um, uh, but, you know, we played out. I was in two projects, one kind of main deal and then another one with friends, and, you know. Uh, Berkeley Square all the time, Gilman here and there, and then you know your your run of the mill teen center or DIY setup. Um, I would say that my first like truly active band um, would be the Wonder Years, um, not to be confused with the contemporary Wonder Years. Right, <laughs> that, that was like a right after high school kind of deal, um, and that band started touring touring fairly a- actively, and then much more so in the later incarnation or, or the altered lineup version of that band. Right. Right. And what, uh, I guess what drew you to, um, you know, the uh, idea and the subculture and to dive in as deep as you did, where you wanted to play in a band. And like you said, you were also influenced by, you know, the, um, the, you know, political nature and just like that, that subculture started to seep into you. What do you think kind of drew you to that? Um, I, I mean, you know, a, a general sense of alienation as a teenager, which I, I think no matter where you're at as a teenager, that's going to play in. How you handle that uh, is going to differ person to person. But um, I didn't feel like I fit in with standardized high school culture. Um, 
And I also really just that lyrical approach, um, you know, again, going back to something like Op Ivy, there were, it was um, in, in social culture as a teenager, but also starting to get, you know, starting to get in touch with uh, global issues or community issues. Um, there was a lot out there that didn't seem right, that was angering me and um, the music aligned with that. And that was like, it's, it's, it's honestly that, that approach to me and, you know, looking at the lyrics that really influenced me, um, looking at the friendships that I built or the relationships that I built and, um, you know, using music as kind of um, the, the tool to uh, catalyze some form of change on a, on a personal level or on a larger level, like that is more important to me than the music itself. So um, yeah, that was, that's the connection there. Right. And did you, uh, I guess, immediately get drawn to, uh, you know, guitar vocals? Like, you know, how, what was your evolution there? Was that always the the thing? Yeah, I, I got a guitar. That was the first, um, you know, I think I took, yeah, I took a little bit of piano as a kid. We had a, an old piano in our house. Um, and I knew a little bit from that, but I just, I picked up a guitar and was basically, uh, I just mostly self-taught. Um, I, you know, I, I think I had lessons for a little while, but you know how that is when, when you're a kid, it's like, I, what is, I don't want to learn this fucking Megadeth song. You know, I wasn't into metal and that's like, I don't know. I, I, I playing by ear is not something or learning other people's songs. Let's say wasn't something I was super interested in, which is, um, I, that's, I, I feel like that's somewhat atypical for, for teenagers that are coming into music. I kind of just started writing, um, and I didn't learn how to how to play something by ear until years and years later. I'm still not that great at it. I'm very slow when I have to pick something up um, that someone else has has written or recorded. Um, and then the vocal thing, I don't, I don't, I can't recall exactly. Um, I think I just wanted to write my own songs. I was an awful, awful singer in high school. Um, I, not much has changed. Slow progress. <laughs> yeah, you're like incrementally better. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, and I think partially because of that, I mean, we joke around about the vocals, but I think that, you know, the way that, you know, all of your bands and, and projects have kind of gone, you have brought a, you know, in my opinion, a unique approach to the way that it's like, I mean, yes, there's obviously the idea of like, oh, you either sing, talk, sing, scream, like, you know, in the context of independent music, but, you know, you've always kind of, uh, you dabbled in all of it as it were. And uh, is that just kind of a function of like, I, I want to stretch myself and learn more? Or is that just kind of like, oh, this fits the music, so I'll do it here? No, I think it was it was certainly stretching myself and then realizing that, hey, certain things I'm doing sound like utter shit. So don't do that anymore. It's, you know, it's a work in progress, um, trial and error. Um, obviously, you know, I screaming... Oh, it's so transparent when it's not sincere. Um, and I, I never wanted to do that. I never wanted to just scream to scream. You know, I think that you need to, uh, for, for lack of better words, you need to truly feel it. Um, and you know, other, other parts might require a more subtle approach. Um, and that's not to say that you're not feeling that as much, but, um, the screaming just became, yeah, an experimental thing. Obviously I was listening to some bands that were taking that approach, um, and I, you know, I, I think that, uh, as of now and going back, I don't know, maybe as far as 20 years, 15 years, um, that there is a style to what I'm doing. 
but um, the way it came about was was never planned out. It just it just kind of happened that way. It, it evolved out of again that that trial and error um, method and that experimentation. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, it's like, well, this didn't work, so I guess I'm going to try to do it this way or what have you. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, and so like you said, the wonder years was kind of your first thing getting out there in regards to, you know, being more active in touring. And I'm sure the, you know, I'm using air quotes here, but the business implications of like, Oh, we actually get paid $200 to play this show or whatever. Um, or five, you know? yeah, or five, right. Either or like, yeah, the, m- money was coming in. It's not like it meant anything because of that reason, but, um, you know, how, like, was that all just like incredibly exciting as that stuff started to happen? Or were there certain aspects of it that you were like, oh, this is weird. This isn't what I anticipated. Um, I mean, I was the, the, the touring element. I was completely enamored by it. Um, you know, just having, having that opportunity to travel and to see the country. And then later with the ghost Europe and Canada, um, you know, wow, how lucky was I? And that shit too gave me having dropped out of college for a while. Um, I think that, uh, that was more impactful and educational by far than just taking the standard route and jumping right into a four year school would have, have been, um, does that, that make sense? Yeah. Oh, totally. It's like the, uh, you learned more doing this than you would have sitting in a classroom. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, the, the, the business angle and the the money stuff, I mean, affording it, affording that lifestyle was always a struggle. Um, no band I've ever been in, um, provided me or anyone else with a, a means of sustaining ourselves. Um, so, you know, figuring out a way to what job are you going to work to be able to do this again, going back to Chicago, where are you going to live, where you can afford to do this? Um, so yeah, I mean the, the, the business factor during the one years never really got under my skin. It was never something I was super interested in. Um, I think the ghost was a far more serious band and, and saw a bit more success. So that became more of a factor with that band. Um, you know, and, uh, I would say it was never, the motive was never money, but being on the right tours or having the right amount of exposure to people was an issue. And I, I found, you know, in hindsight that the more I cared about that stuff and the more serious I was um, with my pursuits or pushing bandmates to, uh, you know, practice harder, things of that nature, um, the shittier I became as a person. And I think it points the music suffered too. And it certainly frayed relationships. So yeah. Yeah. No, that, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up because I definitely think that, especially too, where it's like, you know, usually, you know, second bands, like, especially if you've cut your teeth on, like you, you said, you know, with a, a previous experience of touring and then, you know, once the ghost comes into play and then you're like, okay, well, I've learned from, any previous mistakes I've made. So like, I'm going to try to do it better or whatever. And then sometimes, yeah, you end up pushing on something that's just like, Oh, like I never would have done this in this other band. Why am I doing this here? But you obviously in the middle of it, you can't contextualize that. Yeah. I had to basically, you know, when I moved back to California from Chicago, I, I, um, well, I would say to you that, you know, the, the ghost disbanded and I stayed in Chicago for a couple of years. I was sort of doing Hanway stuff. Um, but it really kind of took me, taking a, a break, not, a, not a, a, a real long one, but taking a break from music um, and, and looking back at, at myself and some, some choices I had made and some, some friendships that I had damaged. And uh, yeah, just reflecting on that and 
realizing, okay, don't do this again. That's not, it's not you. That didn't work out well. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's not the best you can do, you know? Yeah, the for sure. People I've, I've, I've played with, um, and the people involved in the music community to, to me are far more important than any, um, you know, band I've ever been in as, as a, as a whole or whatever that band's released, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Cause I mean, yeah, the relationships will, I mean, you know, technically records last as well, but you know, the relationships are clearly more, <laughs> you know, more, uh, more meaningful in the long term. Yeah. I, you know, I, I wondered there for a while, I was like, can I break up my own solo project? <laughs> Is that <laughs> true? We, you know, some people I think would, would view me in terms of the, the, the business sense, not so much the, the relationships there. Like I said, there were, there were some, some low moments and some, some damaged friendships here and there, but um, a lot of people in terms of uh, I, could I have been more quote unquote successful think that I'm a bit of a, a self saboteur when it comes to that. And I don't mind that. That's, that's fine. You know, uh, sure. Feel like something's right for me. I'm not going to do it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's maybe why you don't uh, call your solo endeavor after your own name. You know, yeah. <laughs> you're like, I can break it up and I can just put out records under my name. It's fine. There you go. <laughs> Um, so walk me through the, you know, because I know when the ghost came on my radar was definitely, you know, this is a hospital and some records, it was such an interesting time because like some was a really weird label where it was like, people were paying attention to it because of the obvious connection with, you know, Walter from quicksand. But then, um, you know, there, there was no, uh, I guess organized uh, push for this label to be like, you know, the next big thing, like, you know what, I mean, bad examples, but like drive through records or whatever the case may be. But um, so, I mean, how'd you even get hooked up with like some records in the first place? So um, no joke. I sent them a demo and we got picked up. <laughs> That's amazing. That like, yeah. it was like, just never happens. When I got a response, I was like, I always just thought this was just like buying like a scratcher at the fucking convenience store, you know, like bands actually get, picked up from demos right so that's that's how that went down you know it was great we were we were fans of of, of certainly hot water and um you know there were like airtight 11 was a phenomenal band too um we the ghost toured a ton with the exit um you know i i musically we were fairly different but they were a fantastic band uh, oh so good i t- honestly you mentioning that just like gave me all the warm fuzzies because i just like i remember at, at one point it was like hey so these guys are going to be like the next police and it's like what well i don't know about that but like they're really really good yeah they were they're a fantastic band um so yeah i mean that's that's how that that landed, you know, some was a, a, a great label. Um, if, if we were really in need, if our van completely broke down and we were out of cash, um, personally or in a band fund, they would loan it to us. I mean, the shit was coming out of any, or added to recoup costs, but, uh, right. you know, there were, there were times where we would have been, uh, absolutely destroyed without their help. And, you know, they certainly promoted those, those records and, um, put in some work. So that was a, a, a great experience overall. And, you know, spending time with those guys in New York was really fun. Um, yeah. But no, that, that's cool. And I, I love that story because yeah, you don't hear those exceptions of like, yeah, because you just assume that they go to some PO box and then, you know, they stack up for months and months and then maybe one person listens to one of them and then that's it. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. It was, maybe it was, sometimes I wonder though, if, if it was just like, uh, I, I don't know, some like dare joke with, with the label guys, right? Like they're all sitting around doing their thing. Like, oh, what if we just 
take reach into the box whoever whatever we pull out we have to put out the record as <laughs> like a joke challenge see if you can see if you can do this and actually sell some records you know? right <laughs> totally this, this is a total experiment let's like uh let's, let's throw this against the wall and see what sticks <laughs> what um as you started to, you know, navigate being on a label and touring and stuff like, did you guys have management? And I know that you worked with uh, booking agents, like you mentioned. Yeah, we had a we had a manager for a while, and um, honestly, unless um, my mind is rewriting history, like nothing really ever came of it. Um, I don't know if anything should have come of it. Uh, the only thing that really stands out is he was connected to that that nineties. Like I don't even want to honor them with the term grunge. I would just say alt rock band sponge. Do you remember them? Oh dude. Yeah. Yeah. Pinata, like rotting pinata or something like that. Yeah. I remember that record. Oh, uh, the guy who managed the ghost offered me a job, um, guitar teching for sponge. (laughs) Wow. That's incredible. (laughs) Which I did not take. And I think that, uh, I can restring guitars very quickly. And I, I think he became aware of that. That's the only reason that happened. And then the other thing that went down was, we weren't really uh, interested in major label conversations, nor was there a lot of interest coming um, from from that circle in our direction. Um, but he got us some meeting with Warner Brothers in LA, and we were on we were on tour with the Velveteen. That's that's who it was, and um, you know everyone was really conflicted, just like oh whatever, just show up, it's free lunch, right? Um, and you know we wanted free lunch at that point. So we, we get into the office and they had gotten takeout sandwiches. And I, at that point I knew I was like, it's takeout sandwiches. Like they don't give a shit about us, you know? Right. And, um, I, I remember this A&R rep, the first thing she said was, you know, I booked a Fugazi show once. Like that's, that's her buy-in point with us. And we're, we're just over it. Um, our, our roadie just basically did, without, um, you know, asking the band, uh, destroyed, said some really crude shit about the Fugazi comment, um, and just ripped into major labels and, you know, effectively any destroyed, any like semblance of uh, a chance of working with that record label on the spot. Um, and we had, at least I didn't have any animosity towards him for doing that. I don't think anyone really did. So, Right. You're like, well, okay. Yeah. Good, good riddance. Uh, that's not going to happen. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's your manager answer right there. Um, right. Yeah. And, you know, because that also was like a really transitionary time for, you know, the, the whole independent music industry in general, because you were coming off of the heels of, you know, these bands that were on warp tour, all of a sudden being successful, like from a mainstream perspective and major label interest and all this stuff. Um, so I, I'm sure, like you said, you were kind of put in these, you know, maybe situations that you probably wouldn't have found yourself, you know, five years prior or five years after the fact. It was just that that sweet spot of that time. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I, I think it's pretty critical for for bands that are uh, in that position. Um, obviously, first, like check your ethics. What do you feel good about? What do you what do you want? Where where's your comfort level at with this whole thing? Um, and you know, I, I, I certainly have strong opinions there that would sway me against being on a a larger major label like that. Um, but also, you know, you have to analyze, you know, looking at the ghost, there's no, there was no way that that could have been a commercially successful band without drastically altering our sound. Um, and it, you know, I, I think sometimes bands or individuals in bands kind of fail to recognize that within what they're doing. Um, 
And, and I guess if you're willing to completely change your sound to cater or to pander, uh, fine. But I, I really doubt I would have. And um, there, yeah, you just, there's just no way it would have ever been commercially successful or, or widely accepted. Right. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And it's like, like you said, it's a huge pivot where it's like, okay, well, the 20% of them is good. So we need to change the 80% of this. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. And, and, and I remember too, like once you, cause you started to uh, do Hanalei, am I pronouncing that correct? Hanalei? Correct. Okay. You started to do that um, kind of towards the tail end, well, not the, the tail end, but like around the second LP of the ghost. Am I correct? Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah. I want to say that's a, that's about right. I would have to start researching on yeah, right. really figured out, but it, it was definitely, I, I started it up while the ghost was still an active band. Right. Cause I, I do remember at that time I was working at independent record store and uh, you know, once that uh, you know, that those releases started to, you know, hit where it's like, Oh, you know, Brian from the ghost. And I was like, Oh, that's cool. And then, you know, hearing, and it, it was interesting too, because I, I have a distinct memory uh, of the idea that was like, okay, like, you know, <laughs> this is going to make you laugh where it's like, the, you know, the postal service was huge. And so it's like, maybe this is his, you know, experiment into the social, you know, the, the solo project endeavor, um, which of course is like not actually reflective of what the sound is at all. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know if people were trying to kind of like put you in certain corners because of it's like, oh, this is the side project of his band. Like, this is just this cute thing he's doing. Like, don't even really pay too much attention to it. Or am I just kind of like reading way too far into it? No, I mean, I, I think that that's completely valid. Um, I wasn't super in the Postal Service, but, you know, I think I, I me trying to meddle in the electronic genre or start programming beats was um, – not great. <laughs> and, sure. um, I didn't know really what I was doing. I was just kind of experimenting. And I would say that hip hop was more of an influence in that. Um, but you know, that records, that first homily records, in my opinion, just kind of garbage. Um, there might be some moments on it, but to your second point there, right too, it's like, I was young and, uh, you know, I, I, probably felt cocky and so i'm you know i could totally do a solo record and um no it, it wasn't that great and i think that you see you still see that a lot right people are like oh yeah i'm, I'm gonna do this alt country thing right like i'm a singer in a band i got this and maybe you don't you know it's like uh, i'm i'm glad that i branched out and tried that and it's led to a lot of other things and here we are with another Honley record out but sometimes it's like staying in your lane is the best advice well I, I mean, I don't disagree, but at the same time, it's like once you start to flex those creative muscles, especially in regards to like, I can't bring this stuff to the band that I play in. Like, you know, I'll either be like laughed out of the room because we're trying to, you know, like square peg round hole scenario or, um, you know, you'll get laughed at because like this uh, dude like this is terrible like of course we can't do anything with this for our band but it does open you up to being able to explore different sonic options right and that becomes like a, a whole other line you know it's like it's it's almost like i wouldn't say starting over but um you're learning an entirely new craft um and and that becomes its own separate evolution and you know that's that's what i did with that and it's it took me a while you know i think the second record was much better it sounded completely different um the third ones, I, you know, that came out about 10 years ago. And that one was, I'd say that's maybe my favorite. And I shouldn't say that considering I just released a new record. But um, yeah, it, it came together over time. Right, right. Well, and I mean, you're being honest. Like you, you, you're your own, probably you're your own worst critic. So, you know, you can 
plant that stake in the ground. I get it. But the but the promo machine, right? No, <laughs> I know, right? It's like the newest is the most uh, sonically compelling and heaviest, and you know, insert adjective here. Yeah. <laughs> um, it, it, I'm I'm gonna guess like you know as, as the ghost started to you know wind down and like what you were talking about in regards to you know relationships started to fray and like you know real world implications start to you know play into it where it's like dude, I can't sit here and like tour for 10 years for $10 or whatever. I got to like, you know, figure out what I'm going to do with my life. Um, was it hard for you to kind of, I guess, transition out of that, you know, really rigorous touring schedule? Or was that kind of like a, a welcome change at a certain point? I mean, I, I think that, yes, it, it was a welcome change. And having, considering that the ghost was was doing that, at, you know, a couple of us were in school. So we were doing that semester on, semester off kind of approach for a little while there. And that provided a nice transition or, or segue into um, a more relaxed touring schedule. And when, when Hanlei was a full band, you know, I was still in Chicago and we did some touring. It just certainly wasn't as, as active as what the ghost had been doing. Um, and then, you know, later on, like now I'm like, I don't, you know, given COVID, yeah, sure. I'd go on tour. I'd do anything to go hang out and travel with people, you know? Um, but I don't, in a general sense, I don't, I don't want to do that again. You know, I had my fill. Um, I got so much of it in and I'm so grateful to have had those experiences. But, um, you know, as you suggested, yeah, it's not sustainable to keep doing that um, for $10 a day or, or from a, a, a health level, you know, um, I, for certain individuals, like drinking and drugs come into play. You're not getting any exercise. It just becomes grueling, you know? Um, so uh, I don't think it was that hard for me. And I kind of have transferred over the years um, that travel passion from touring in, into just personal travel or, or um, when I can, I'll do a surf trip down to Central America or something like that. And it's, you know, I, I definitely have, have the bug and um, there are there are other ways um, to to tap into that. It, it's funny you say that because it does like for, you know, your average civilian or normal person that like, you know, takes a vacation and like actually sees a city as opposed to our experience of touring and being like, Hey, I saw three blocks radius. Like, you know, I saw the local coffee shop or whatever, but that was it. Um, and it's funny when you're like, Oh, I can actually go to a place and like spend time there as opposed to eight hours there. Totally. And yeah, I remember like one of the first larger trips I did after kind of bowing out of heavy touring and that it, you, you just nailed it. It was, it was just that just like, wow, I'm, I'm here. I can experience all this. Um, I don't have to look at a, an itinerary or um, get in the van and do an overnight drive. I can just take this in. So I think that's affected me too. You know, there's, there are people um, that when they travel, everything is planned out, right? There's the whole, like the family itinerary. I hate that shit. I can't stand it because that's what we did when we toured, you know, and you, you know that and it's, now, when I go somewhere, I kind of just like to post up in one little region and really take that in on a deep level rather than try to experience little tidbits rushing around here and there. Right. Yeah. It's like, here's, yeah, here's, here's your plan for the day. Hurry up and wait, hurry up and wait. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, it has, uh, you know, any, because you've been teaching for, you've been teaching for over 10 years now, right? Or no? uh, this, I, this is your 10 or 11. I might be 10. I, I had a, I had a half year, um, which was weird, but, uh, yeah, let's just say 10. Okay. Yeah. We'll round it up. Um, <laughs> has, I, I'm going to guess at some point, uh, students have discovered your, uh, you know, either musical past or the fact that you, you know, putting out records and like that sort of stuff. Uh, do you try 
not to hide it, but like, you know, how do you react when people kind of bring that stuff up? I, I mean, I'm certainly not going to encourage anyone to go looking for it. Um, I, I will tell students that, you know, when they're asking about my background and prior teaching, I'm like, yeah, I used to do music stuff and I traveled a ton doing it. And it was great. Um, if you're interested, you know, in doing that yourself, talk to me about it. Um, but yeah, I, I'd say my, my stance with that's fairly neutral. Um, I'm not encouraging anyone to look for it. Uh, I'm not trying to completely hide it. I definitely did a personal um, YouTube uh, purge when I first started teaching. So anything scandalous has got to go. And there's I, there's still some stuff that might be questionable in certain schools. But um, I don't know. I, I, I try to – I've only really worked in two schools. I, my last job I had for nine years and, and left by, by choice to take this new one on. But I would uh, like to think that the, the jobs um, I take – or that are offered to me, if you know, if I'm accepted, then it's nothing is going to be a problem on 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 that tip, you know. Right, right, yeah. It, it's not like you're setting up a, a merch table at the front of the classroom, like, hey, you know, like, guys, I put out a new record. Right, and I, you know, it's like there's uh, you can find interviews where I've gotten fairly political, and you know, I think certain schools that that something like that might be a problem. Um, where I'm at now, I don't, I doubt it would be, and um, yeah, yeah, knock on wood. There we go. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This, uh, well, this won't get you fired, Brian. <laughs> um, and the, the last thing I want to hit on was the, um, you know, when you are doing, you know, creating your own music and everything from, you know, soup to nuts in regards to, you know, art direction and like working with labels and figuring out a way to distribute it. Um, you know, this is what you've been doing for, you know, the past, whatever, 10 to 15 years as you've progressively released more music. Um, there are certain, you know, limitations within that where it's like, you know, you are only able to, you know, kind of create what your, I guess, talent will allow, you know, I mean, obviously you can work with collaborators and everything, but, um, you know, how have you found, I guess that journey, you know, clearly you like it because you're still doing it, but, um, you know, do you, I guess, enjoy the, uh, I guess the constructs of what the quote unquote solo project exists in? Yeah, I, I do. And, um, you know, I'm, I, as you've said, there are limitations, um, both in terms of just being one person and then certainly the limitations of my talents. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm aware of where I'm, I'm at as a musician. Um, and I have very high expectations, but they're, they're within reason. Um, and, you know, I, I really enjoy solo work in the modern day because I can record at home and basically, layer the shit out of things um you know to some at some points i've I've done it to just an incredibly excessive extent and then i need to go back and pull them out um but you know i have endless time i can record for free um and then you know it's very easy to collaborate with people sending files if you want to bring other other folks or friends in um and you know so that it's great the problem with that though becomes that if you ask me to go um, I don't know, down to the local venue and play songs off my new record as my, just, just by myself. Uh, there's like maybe one or two that would sound decent because it's, I, I recorded it as if it's a full band and my, my friend played drums on the new record too. Uh, the drums aren't really the, the, the limitation though. It's more the layered guitars and relying on leads as, as kind of hooks uh, more so than vocals. So yeah, we'll, we'll see, but I, I certainly enjoy the process. It's, um, it's uh, so enjoyable and at, at times consuming and I get obsessive with it. Um, I'm, sur- I'm going to take a break <laughs> for right. now for a while on it, but yeah. Right. No, no, that's cool. And I, I think it is, 
there there is that notion, and I know you probably wrestled around with it, like that self indulgent nature, where it's just like, why why are people, you know, because everyone is always feeling some level of imposter syndrome, where it's like, why should people even care and pay attention to you know what I'm doing? But then getting over that hump to be like, oh well, I I just want to create regardless of who is listening. I mean, it's cool if ten people listen, um, and it's even cooler if hundred people listen. But if one person listens, then you know, I, I find validity in that in and of itself. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. There's no way I could stop doing this. Um, I, I think the breaks are healthy because you reset and then you kind of, I, I really, at least for me creatively, I can't force it. Um, it's, it's got to come from just like lightning bolts of inspiration, which um, I, I find that I, I need moments of, of, of rest and relaxation in order to get those. Um, but yeah, it's, it would be, I, I don't know. It's just in me at this point. I've done it for so long. I wouldn't know how to not do it. Right. It's like too, too bad world. This is what you're getting, whether you like it or not. <laughs> no, but I, I mean, I, uh, joking aside, I think it's, uh, it, it's been really cool to, you know, watch your own musical progression and you being able to do these things as, you know, uh, either regularly or sporadically as you want to, and then put them out and still obviously have people be like, Oh, like, the, Oh, that's cool. I wasn't expecting a new Hanalei record, but like, here we are. And like, let's reckon with it. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm kind of shocked that people <laughs> still want to listen to it or that, um, that people want to put it out. Uh, you know, like I suggested, I would, I would do it regardless of that, but you know, that, that, you know, if you're not, in that industry game, you're enabled to do that, right? Um, you know, whereas if you are an actively touring band and the record label's concerned with sales, like you need to be putting out X amount of records and X amount of years. And that's not just contractually speaking, that's just the general expectation, right? Of listeners and people in the industry. Um, and I don't, I don't like playing that game. So, um, it, you know, it's been, like I said, 10 years since I last released the Hanalei record and there's a few seven inches in, in, in between there, but, um, that's, you know, n- n- I, I don't think a lot of people are doing that, but I don't know. I, I just don't care. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You're like, Hey man, let me just keep doing what I'm doing. And that's, uh, it's going to make me happy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, thank you so much for hanging out, Brian. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for letting me uh, p- ping pong around your life. Oh, and this is a, a, a wonderful conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to, t- to talk to me. There we go. That was Brian. Thank you very much for uh, hanging out, Brian. It was a, a fun chat and an enlightening conversation, and I appreciated the insight you were able to share about uh, your band and all my curiosity. So that was fun. Next week, we actually have another Brian on the show, which is funny because I didn't mean for that to happen, but it did. His name is Brian Fair. He plays in a band called uh, Overcast. He played in a band called Shadows Fall. He is, in my mind, a Massachusetts hardcore slash metal legend. This dude is awesome. I've traveled in his orbit for many years. You know, I worked at Century Media um, when Shadows Fall was on the label. I never got to really interact with him very much, but have kind of watched him from afar. And so when I was able to have him on the show and have a deeper conversation with him, I was stoked because I love. <laughs> love all of his bands and it was a uh, really really interesting to talk to a person who you know achieved a lot of amazing things that people can't achieve on a regular basis with an independent music and how he's got a really healthy perspective on it. He just, you know, continues to pursue all of his, uh, you know, creative endeavors with the same sort of passion and vigor that he had when, uh, you know, Overcast first started to gig around when he was like 17, 18 years old. So really cool stuff. Brian Fair on the show next week. And until then, please be safe, everybody.